You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello, and welcome to episode 189 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on a recent vote by the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have a slightly larger panel than normal, which I'm sure will lead to a really rich conversation. I have Katie Grubbs, Alexis Neal, and Blake Miller with me. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Let's introduce ourselves, just in case anybody is new to the program. Katie, start us off. I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Leeds, Alabama, uh, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our four children. And I am an adjunct professor of English for Houston Christian University. I teach online, so I can teach here uh, for my students in Houston. And uh, one of the things that's going on with me is that I'm currently trying to get certified and approved to be a substitute teacher in our local school district. So that's been uh, a fun adventure of getting fingerprinted multiple times. (laughs) That sounds really cool. I'm sure you'd be a great sub, Katie. Let's hope so. I'm used to college students, so primary school students is going to be an adventure for sure, but we'll hope it goes well. And that we're all still alive at the end of the day. You're a very very brave soul. (laughs) Yes. Uh, well, I'll update you guys later on if this actually goes well or not, but I love the idea of getting even more involved in my kids' school, and my mom was a substitute teacher, and I loved it, so I'm going to try it out and see how it goes. Awesome. Alexis, tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Alexis Neal. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the uh, political podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um I am mostly a stay-at-home mom and a homeschool mom these days, but by training, I am an attorney, and I also uh, serve as an elected official for our rural community. So I, I get to have some grown-up conversations sometime to uh, to offset all of the, um, the the time that I spend wearing my mommy hat. Well, we're uh, we're happy to be one of your outlets for grown-up conversation, and uh, always happy that you're here with us. Thank you. You're very kind. Blake, your turn. All right. I'm Blake Miller. I'm currently living in Greenville, South Carolina. I was born and raised in the SBC, but now I'm a part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and uh, I'm working as a hospital chaplain for a cancer institute here in Greenville. Um, living with my wife and our dog. Thanks, Blake. And I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I am one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael Farmer, uh, and our two budgies, Jerry and Veronica. Um, For fun, I write and read and play the ukulele, and for money, I am a community engagement manager for a market research firm. Uh, 
So um, now that we have gotten to know everybody a little bit, uh, let's dive into what we're going to be talking about. Today we're going to be discussing the Southern Baptist Convention's June 2023 vote to ratify a proposed amendment to Article 3, Paragraph 1 of the SBC Constitution to state that a cooperating church, quote, affirms, appoints, or employs only men as any kind of pastor or elder as qualified by scripture. Uh, And we're also going to be talking about a surrounding controversy that occurred uh, when a Virginia pastor, Mike Law, published a list of churches in the SBC that employed women pastors um, in the time leading up to this vote. When some of the women on the list were doxxed and harassed following its publication, a national conversation turned to the fact that uh, while the SBC disfellowshipped churches employing women pastors, uh, lots of people thought that they had not, up to that point, shown meaningful movement forward on the abuse reforms passed in the previous year's vote. Uh, So since all of us here have some degree of history with the Southern Baptist Convention, and since obviously all of us here care about the type of gender and theology intersection at the center of this conversation, we wanted to take some time to discuss its effects. Um, But let's start with our own histories with the convention. Um, Alexis, can you start us off, tell us about your Southern Baptist Convention experiences? Sure. I did not grow up Southern Baptist. Um, I've been about probably seven or eight different other denominations, um, but was not a member of a Southern Baptist church uh, until I was an adult. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I came to it a little bit later and I'm currently a member of a Southern Baptist church. So uh, I don't have the same historical uh, affiliation with it and the same... um, emotional connection from that upbringing. It's something that I have chosen and deliberately participated in uh, as an adult based on convictions that I reached and feeling like the, the Southern Baptist convention was the the best place for me to fit in with those, with those convictions. So um, I've been probably total amount of time. I've been a member of an SBC church is, Oh, probably a dozen years so not as long as a lot of people, um, but but I'm currently uh, SBC by choice. Thanks, Alexis. Uh, Katie, what about you? So I grew up in Southern Baptist churches when I was a kid, and I'm pretty sure my parents were messengers at some point. Like, I think they went to at least one convention that I remember when I was a child. And so those were always the churches I was in growing up. During college, I started out in an SBC church, but then um, the friend that I was going to church with, she kind of just stopped stopped really attending church there. And because I would rather not go to church alone, um, then I I stopped attending my SBC church not because I didn't I didn't agree with the theology anymore, but because I just didn't want to go to church by myself. And so I spent some time in college attending our college chapel at Berry College, which is where I went to school, um, which was super broadly ecumenical. Because, of course, it was. Barry is not a denominational school. It's not a Christian college, right? So um, our college chaplain would preach every Sunday. um, And I attended with a friend who uh, I think grew up Methodist. I can't remember. We went together. Um, In grad school at UGA, when David and I lived there, we went to uh, PCA churches. 
So we were at Redeemer Presbyterian in Athens. And then we switched our last year um, in Athens. We switched to their church plant, Resurrection Presbyterian, which was on the east side. Um, and we really enjoyed the PCA and we enjoyed the liturgy. And we um, absolutely were down with all of their particular uh, theological distinctives, except for pedobaptism. And it didn't matter for us then because we didn't have any kids, but we wouldn't have stayed in the PCA after we had had children because we um, we would not have baptized our children because we believe in believers' baptism. Um, and our church was fine with that, but we were not. <laughs> we felt like if it was a important enough theological distinctive for them that it was a one of the big things, you know, in their statement of faith that we should agree with it <laughs> if we were going to stay there. So um, when we moved out to Kansas, we went to a Bible church for a while because that was the church in our town that agreed with our theological beliefs. There was not an SBC church in that town at all. It's a very different theological landscape in rural Kansas, and we're not any type of Lutheran, so or a Mennonite. <laughs> so yeah, options the, were more the, limited for us there. The Midwest is is certainly different in that regard if you're used to growing up in the South, yeah. Yeah, we had Baptist churches in our town, but the big Baptist church in our little town was Cooperative Baptist, so um, uh, that didn't necessarily fit with us. Um, when we went back, to, when we moved to Texas, we were in a church that was affiliated with the SBC, and now uh, that we are living here in Birmingham, close to Birmingham, we are attending an SBC church again. So we've always, as at least since we've been married, we've always kind of gone with our theological convictions, which has led us in different directions over time. But kind of like Alexa said, at the moment, um, we're in an SBC church because that's what aligns with our beliefs. Um, and so that, so I mean, I've kind of been in and out of the SBC, I guess I should say, my entire life. Um, I've definitely, in the time since I started thinking more intently about all these things and really working through what do I believe about these issues about um, leadership in the church, all that kind of has been in the time we were in a Bible church and in the SB and then back in SBC churches. So um, that's kind of the background I've got. Thanks for sharing that with us, Katie. Um, I really like a lot of what you said about um, letting your convictions define your affiliation and and not the other way around. Um, I'm sure that will those thoughts will lead us to uh, some some interesting questions and and places to go in this ensuing discussion. Um, Blake, you already mentioned you grew up uh, in a Southern Baptist church, um, and you mentioned your. Uh, a little bit about going to seminary. Tell us more about both of those things. Sure. Uh, I grew up uh, Southern Baptist in rural middle Georgia. So, you know, you were either a Baptist or a Methodist, as far as I could tell. And the only difference I could understand was, you know, whether or not the, the pastor sometimes wore a robe. So um, I didn't have a lot of uh, conviction towards the specific Baptist ideals because I didn't know what was Baptist and what was just generally Christian that much. Uh, when I got to college, similarly uh, to what you guys have said, I didn't want to go anywhere alone, so I ended up at a Church of Christ um, and just kind of let that be a slightly uncomfortable fit. Um, but you know, they were they were okay with all of my theology for the most part, ended up going to Abilene Christian University for my master's degree in divinity, which is kind of teetering off the left edge of uh, the Church of Christ theologically, uh, including on the question of women in ministry. So uh, after that, uh, got into being a chaplain uh, and found myself you know, wanting to go back to the Baptist roots and learned about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which split off uh, from the Southern Baptist about 30, 35 years ago, 
and uh, found myself in one of their churches, was really still at that point thinking, you know, I'm a non- non-denominational person who, who can go to most churches, but found myself drawn back to the, the power and the allure of denominations if and as that meant uh, groups of churches being able to work together to accomplish goals that an individual church might not be able to, to do on their own. Uh, so that's where I find myself now. I'm currently in a church that is kind of dual aligned with SBC and CBF. And interestingly enough, our lead pastor uh, resigned uh, amicably in January. And because of that, and I think because of the SBC kind of getting, you know, putting more attention onto these kinds of questions uh, that we're going to talk about, there was a lot of brouhaha about well, is our next pastor going to be more of an SBC pastor or more of a CBF pastor? And there were some SBC members who were really worried about the latter opportunity or latter thing happening. Like I said, brouhaha, some some fighting words. And at this point, three more staff members uh, from my church have left uh, for various reasons, not necessarily just because of this, but that includes two uh, women staff members who you know, we're doing really good work. And, you know, the question was asked, is, is are, are their jobs, you know, ever so slightly in jeopardy because of the decisions we make coming up for our next pastor, that sort of thing. So. All right. So you're, uh, you're quite intimately familiar with, with some of the things we're going to discuss. That's uh, right. That's good. Fe- feeling the pinch of it. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that you are, but I'm I'm sure it will will help our, our discussion be more nuanced. Sure. So, uh, I'll just say very quickly. Um, I also grew up in a Southern Baptist church, um, and went attended Southern Baptist churches into college. Um, I stopped attending church altogether for a few years. Um, partly because the kind of megachurch that I was attending in college um, became much more about who you were going to date and get married to um, than it did about any kind of theological underpinnings, and I um, felt very annoyed with all of that, and also was going through some theological changes um, personally at that time, and Shortly after that, I started dating my now husband, and we attended um, Presbyterian churches for a few years uh, until we both, for different reasons but at the same time, started um, feeling the call to cross the Tiber, um, and we converted to Catholicism in 2020. So um, because I am no longer a Baptist, though I am very close to a lot of people who still are and, and kind of grew up in that environment, um, I wanted to helm this episode and be able to ask the questions uh, since I feel very attached to them. But because they no longer directly affect me, I'm going to do my best to step back and, uh, and let you guys talk. So, um, 
with that in mind. Today we're going to be talking about two articles, one from Christianity Today that digs into the misgivings some complementarian women have about this vote and what it means for their place in their congregation, and another from the newspaper The Tennessean that covers the issue more broadly. Um, We're going to start with a quick summary of the Christianity Today piece. Blake, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So the SBC uh, met in New Orleans this summer, and one of the biggest issues was whether they would enforce rules that they'd already had basically on the books in terms of women being in teaching and preaching positions in uh, churches that are fellowshipped with them. And they'd previously disfellowshipped from uh, Saddleback Church in California, famously uh, Rick Warren's church, after he retired and uh, he was replaced with a husband and wife team as senior pastors. Saddleback appealed that decision, and that appeal was rejected. So they're fully out of the SBC, it seems, at this point. And uh, like we said earlier, they have amended their constitution to state more explicitly that any person bearing the title of pastor at an SBC church had to be male. And if they reaffirm that next year, that'll be fully enacted. And so the question now becomes, especially in, in terms of this article, okay, what can women do? Where can they serve? And uh, what's going to happen to other professional roles of churches handled by women? If women who are professors at seminaries or seminary students um, or, you know, other secretarial or advisory roles in churches, what's going to happen to them? Um, Mark Deaver, one of a, a large or a prominent SBC pastor in the article, says that uh, you can perform a certain job as a woman that's okay, but if you have the title of pastor, or elder, that's not okay. Uh, J.D. Greer, who was the lead pastor of a large church in the SBC and the former SBC president, uh, talked about having a children's director who was a woman who oversees male volunteers and spoke candidly that other SBC members might see that as a violation of the rules that they have for themselves. So the big concern is that there are a lot of women in churches who lead ministries, do heavy work, but aren't on staff due to this idea of biblical mandates. And do they deserve less status? Do they deserve not to be on staff? Do they deserve to be paid less just because of their sex? Um, And the other question is whether jobs and positions and power are being given to unqualified men just so they aren't given to qualified women. Um, And it's worth noting that Many women in the SBC uh, believe that this is the right way for things to go. They have complementarian views on women in ministry, uh, restrictions on pastors and elders, but others have concerns as to whether their ability to serve will be restricted any more than it already has been. And how this conversation is handled is appearing uh, to women in the SBC um, like the denomination doesn't think it has a real place for them or a use for them. Thanks, Blake. Uh, that's that's really helpful. Um, so you mentioned that this piece focuses on complementarian women. Um, and since I know uh, Katie and Alexis, both of you mostly, I think, identify yourselves as such, uh, I wanted to hear from you about um, whether you think the piece correctly um, encapsulates your position, uh, how you see yourself inside your congregation, and how you might feel um, about the way this vote is framed. Can the two of you speak to that a little? 
Those are very different questions to me. So, so just as an initial point, I have not in any of the SBC churches I've been affiliated with bumped up against complementarianism as an obstacle to me serving in ministry. Now that said, I've also never been someone who was pursuing full-time or paid ministry. Um, so I, it doesn't mean that there weren't people at those churches who felt like they were bumping up against that, but that has not been my experience. There have been times when being complementarian did result in some frustration or friction, but it was not based on, not, not around my serving in a ministry, in a ministry capacity. It was more just personal stuff. Um, Before we go further, um, it occurs to me that we might have some new listeners that don't know what we mean when we say complementarian. So can you define that word really quickly for us? Uh, Sure. I can try to do that. So, um, very broadly, and I apologize for getting this uh, incorrect, which I'm sure I will. Uh, complementarianism is a fairly recent term, but it is designed to uh, to call to mind the idea of complementarity, that is complementary uh, sexes, men and women being different and serving different uh, roles within the body of Christ and in the home. Um, we do have a spinoff podcast uh, called Complementarian-ish, and we've done a couple of episodes um, on the CFP uh, feed, uh, main feed, um, sort of going through some of the the, the ideas uh, for complementarianism, and then it is usually viewed in in uh, contrast to egalitarianism. Uh, broadly, an egalitarian view would be men and women are equally able to serve across ministry capacities and roles, including, for example, things like being the senior pastor of a church, um, a complementarian viewpoint would would limit some of the um, some of those roles to qualified men. There would be disagreement among complementarians to some degree on what those limits might be. Um, and then you also have applications for differing roles and authority within the home. So you might have a complementarian conversation about leadership and headship in a marriage um, and male leadership there. And then also some complementarians would would apply those principles outside of the church and home context more broadly in culture. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it has to do with issues of authority and when it, it is appropriate biblically for a woman to be in a position of authority in relationships with men. Um, does that kind of cover? Hopefully yeah, that kind that's, of covers it. Yeah, that's great. Um, that was a, a really okay. concise, uh, definition of a difficult thing. Thank you for giving it to us. And, uh, Please continue your previous point. Yeah, so I don't have, I would not be one of the women in this article who is concerned about my ministry and how it's affected by this SBC vote. But part of that is because of the kind of ministry I have or have not been involved in um, and not being maybe as much involved in ministry as I ought to be and maybe just being too selfish to be <laughs> to be concerned about some of this stuff. Um, but, but yeah, so I did not... I, I don't share those same concerns, um, and some of that's for reasons that we can probably get into later. Um, and then how it frames the SBC vote is a longer conversation with procedural stuff that's not related to me being a woman in an SBC church. So I'm going to let Katie weigh in on um, how she sees herself in her congregation <laughs> before I start talking about whys and wherefores. Um, I think like Alexis, I haven't, I haven't really bumped up against this in, um, in our church 
personally, I will say for our church, um, and I'm not going to say, oh, we're doing it right because every church is different. I like the way things happen at our church, our current church, which is the Church of Brick Hills in Birmingham, because at our church, um, there are a lot of there are a lot of women and there are a lot of men on staff, all paid, and there are a lot of and and all, all the women, but also tons of the men are referred to as minister, not pastor. So while there aren't women at our church with the title pastor, there are also a whole lot of men on staff, full-time paid men who also are not referred to as pastor. So at our church, the the title pastor is reserved for like our lead pastor, our executive pastor, like these guys with like big, like ultimate decision-making, you know, kind of roles. And then, um, and some guys who are literally in charge of other pastors. So like our pastor of local disciple making, he's over like five people. Some are women, some are men who all, they all have the title of minister. He's in charge of them. So he's pastoring them as they're ministering to the flock. And so um, I, I like that because it's not a situation where, as I think probably is true in some SBC churches, where you have men who have the title of pastor, women doing work that's just as difficult and for which they're probably paid the same but not being called pastor purely because they're women, if that makes sense. Um, at our Texas church, it was almost the opposite problem. At our Texas church, also affiliated with the SBC, you had men and women on staff being paid full-time, all called pastors. Though, weirdly, our church didn't make it on the list, the hit list, like the Mike Law list. Our church wasn't on there. Our Texas church, I, I'm shocked. I was looking for it on there because... I was going to ask you if it was because it I, wasn't. I knew I that and it. I know that a lot of the churches were in Texas. Okay, interesting. Yes, I couldn't find it. And it should have been, I mean, by his rules, it should have been on the list, right? Because our women's pastor was called a pastor. Our children's pastor was a woman. She was called a pastor. Like, and, and David used to laugh about pastor, what David called, my husband calls pastor creep, which is the temptation in modern churches of all kinds. <laughs> not just like SBC churches to call everything a pastor. Like we had a media pastor at our Texas church. That, what is that? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, like, that's. He's not shepherding the cameras. And I mean, he did, amazing, <laughs> he did amazing work, but his work was not, that's not pastoral work. Like, so I think part of the problem with these titles is that you sometimes often have the title pastor being used for men or women when it's not really appropriate, like regardless because of the job they're doing. Um, so I haven't, I haven't run into problems because of it. One thing that I really liked in this article though, the CT article is the part where, and I can't, um, I can't remember what she was, what she was talking about, but when, um, or, and I think these were her, these were her words, um, not somebody she was quoting, um, was when, and I wrote it down, Southern Baptist women themselves can be hesitant to speak up with their concerns, afraid that publicly questioning the recent moves could get them labeled as liberal or egalitarian. That's absolutely true. Like, I have not bumped up against anybody trying to tell me I can't do anything in my SBC churches in terms of the types of ministry that I've been involved with, which has been women's ministry, special needs ministry, um, and stuff like that. But absolutely, I think there's a feeling in the SBC at large, there is a, a huge hesitance to, even if you're fine with how things are happening in your church, even if you completely agree with every complementary theology in the book, still expressing any kind of reservations online or saying you're concerned about where this could lead or anything like that is, is very liable to get you labeled, uh, uh, like an undercover uh, egalitarian or something like that. So I think where this kind of, I liked the idea of narrowing that was in that article's headline and the, and throughout the article that it's a, it's a narrowing for women in some ways. I think that's true mostly in terms of the rhetoric, a lot of it. And there's a, a narrowing of, you know, what it's, what it's okay to question 
Um, and I, I think it's healthy for the denomination to have women who agree with all of the theological distinctives, nevertheless, stand up and say, what message is this sending? Like, what are we, why, why, why is, you know, and I liked, um, I don't actually, I'm not a huge Courtney Russick fan who she's quoted twice in the article, but I really liked both her quotes in the article. And one of the things that she said is why is all the conversation about limitations and almost none of the conversation about, you know, um, showing the work that women are doing and all these ways that are available to them in our denomination. It seems to be the conversation at least seems to be all about limitations. Whatever's going on in local churches, the national conversation at the convention level seems to be all about limitations, not about opportunities. Yes, I I really liked that as well. And I, um, I'm not sure exactly what um, the churches all of you grew up in were like, uh, but the church I grew up in, women made it run. Like they, they may not have been in pastoral positions, um, though I, I do think our children's pastor um, was a woman, and I'm pretty sure they called her our children's pastor. Um, but in any case, the, the work that women did on committees and in planning events and in serving the community really was the the backbone of the service of our church. And so I, I liked that quote because I thought um, it, it really rang true to, to some of my experiences. And I, I, I understood the, the impulse to that um, concern, but when you have a body like the SBC that is not a denomination, but an association of churches, it, Basically, it seems like as you approach what I tend to think of as a leftward edge, um, you have increasing unity about what that leftward edge is. But as you move away from that leftward edge, you don't have unity. And so I don't know what in the world any kind of convention level statement could look like, because even if it's just sharing stories of women in ministry, there would absolutely be churches I mean, like, like Greer says in the piece, there are churches who would say that example of your church where women are overseeing male volunteers in the children's ministry, they believe that that violates uh, scriptures outline for for these relationships and for these roles and so they're not going to see that as isn't this great like we, we just there is not unity around what is permissible and should be celebrated um i would like to see i would like to see a conversation about is there a right word edge uh, and katie and I, we've talked about this some on the complementarian-ish podcast like is there a a point at which the complementarianism becomes so restrictive that it falls off the ledge of what Southern Baptists are comfortable um, endorsing and, and, and affiliating with. Um, it may be that there isn't one, but if there is one, maybe kind of outline that or at least talk about it. But within that middle area, there's so much variety among these autonomous local congregations. I understand why there wouldn't be a, a convention level statement about here's what's permissible. I understand the desire for it, but just given the kind of animal that the SBC is, I don't know how that would ever happen. And I think the best case scenario would be to do something like what J.D. Greer um, did at his church. Uh, so so his church, um, they, they basically through their staffing and said, which positions do we think elders need to hold? Like the, this, this position, this paid staff position needs to be fulfilled by an elder. And then anything that didn't meet that criteria, if it doesn't have to be an elder, they were willing to like, let's look at whether women, like let's put women in these positions, let's recruit women, let's consider women for these positions. Now his church had come to the conclusion that 
that was permissible. But I would say that the best case scenario we could get from a convention would be, hey, local church, talk about what your convictions are around this issue, figure out what you think the Bible teaches, and up to whatever that limit is for you, you need to be, like, we encourage you to recruit, encourage, and support women in the full range of what you believe is permissible, not just permit, but actually invite and recruit and all of those things. But that line is going to be different. So the best thing I think you could do is just say, you know, don't, don't say here's our line. And also we're kind of fine with nothing below that line either. Like say, here's the line and we're going to maximize everything we can up to that line. Uh, Because otherwise I don't know how the autonomous local believers um, and the the fact that it's a convention and not a denomination, I don't see how you get, the kind of clarity that I understand is desired, but I don't think is feasible. I I like that point a lot, and I, I appreciate that you're exploring this tension between kind of broader theological or denominational um, agreements and individual validation and, and position. Um, but I, I would like the position you just articulated because because it is, in fact, the Catholic doctrine of local subsidiarity. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so yeah, that that is it is one of the things I signed up for as a Catholic. The idea that things are are ruled best, um, that that service is done best when it it happens uh, at the local level as much as possible. So, uh, I I think that's that's funny that um, that lots of groups that. I imagine wouldn't know that they agree on that, uh, do tend to agree on it. Uh, and I would, uh, just for clarity's sake, say we've been talking about the SBC is not a denomination. And I think what you mean by that mainly is that there's not a sense of edicts being handed down from on high that churches are routinely like required to attend to, or they don't have a direct influence in who is hired for these positions? Or is there any other kind of uh, explanation or definition you would give for why the SBC doesn't consider itself a denomination? I mean, I'm I'm not an expert in all of these matters, but I, I mean, just the fact that you talk about the being in friendly cooperation cooperation with the SBC, that's that's technically the you know, when you're when you're part of the SBC, that's that's the language and you can choose to disassociate or you can choose to associate and they can disfellowship or they can continue to fellowship um, and they have a Baptist faith and message. But even even that, um, as again, I'll probably talk about it in a minute here with some of this procedural stuff. Um, it doesn't have to be like, it, it's not necessarily held by every Southern Baptist church. So it's, it's an association, a voluntary association of churches. I'm sure there's a better way that I'm not explaining it of like how they actually define it, but because it doesn't have a hierarchy because of the autonomy of the local churches, um, the congregational polity that, that is, um, that is favored. Um, it just, it, it doesn't look the same as the other denominations where you can say we as a denomination think x that's just harder to to do um you can do it for the convention but the convention doesn't control those churches it just controls the convention and it controls its entities um i think is the hope that's an accurate way to say it i think so i like the sound of that and it sounds like it gives a lot of freedom for churches to say we're going to do our own work to determine what we believe is correct and thus make allowances and make availability uh, for people as as we believe it is possible and prudent to do so. Which is part of what I think is interesting about what happened this summer is that you had substantive and more procedural 
questions uh, surrounding uh, surrounding the issues. So you would have people who might agree on the substance, disagree on some of the procedural, how how these things are handled, what role autonomy has, what role uh, disfellowshipping or friendly cooperation has. So um, it's I don't know that it was always portrayed that way in the media and in some of the responses. It was just a straight up and down complimentary and you know, thumbs up or thumbs down and not leaving room for all of the different different other questions that were part of the conversation. Tell us more about that, Alexis. Talk about procedure and, and what its role is here. So I, I am not a, an expert on this, but but I think so I think a couple of things that are, are helpful to keep in mind. One is there were two separate issues, and Blake talked about this already. There were two separate issues before the convention that both related to complementarian ideas. One was the specific disfellowshipping of Saddleback, and I think there was one other church, um, whether they should be disfellowshipped because of their non-complementarian practices regarding ordaining women. Um, and then the second one was, should the, S the SBC uh, constitution be amended? Um, for a little bit of context, I'm sorry, I will try to keep all of this short. Um, currently, the constitution requires that churches be in friendly cooperation with the SBC in order to stay part of that association. Um, and there are there are currently, let's see, there are currently five requirements for what it means to be in friendly cooperation. One is that their faith and practice closely identifies with the SBC statement of faith, which is currently the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Um, two, they say they want to cooperate. Three, they make the required donations to the cooperative program. Four, they don't act inconsistently with the SBC beliefs regarding sexual abuse. Five, they're not racially discriminatory. And then the, 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 the secondary issue this summer was, do we add a number six specifically that they um, appoint only qualified men to be pastors or elders. Uh, it's worth noting that the first of those five requirements, that their faith and practice closely identify with the SBC Statement of Faith, um, that Statement of Faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, includes complementarian language. So that's already there. It's already incorporated by virtue of pulling in that statement of faith. This is just saying we're going to pull it out, we're going to name it, and we're going to say as a requirement for friendly cooperation, you have to only have male pastors. Um, so there is a credentials committee that I think is only like five or six years old that evaluates whether a church is in friendly cooperation using these five criteria. Because of that Baptist faith and message criteria, they could already take into account complementarian ideas. The idea, the question is just elevating it to its own separate numbered item and making it um, kind of a deal breaker. Right. I think that, that's it, a, sorry, go, go ahead, ahead, Blake. Okay. I was going to say, if my information is correct, it's the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message that actually updates, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, sometime in the 1960s, the last Baptist Faith and Message yes. that did not have quite yes. uh, as well codified an idea of uh, complementarian ideals. So, for instance, my the church I actually belong to affirms the 1960s uh, faith and message statement, but has never uh, fully endorsed the 2000 statement. So, I don't know that my church has actually done the, the BFM 2000 either. I mean, it's it's not it's by no means universally adopted by Southern Baptist churches, but it is in the Constitution. That is the that is something that the Credentials Committee can use to decide if someone's in friendly cooperation. Um, so there were then so there was these two issues, right? Specifically, these churches in or out, and then do we amend the Constitution within like 
in that whole discussion, you had a whole cascade of other like related debates. So the biggest one, the one that gets reported in the media, I think, is the substantive debate debate complementarianism versus egalitarianism, right? If you are egalitarian, you would say, we want to keep Saddleback and we don't want to change the Constitution. Um, and sort of a subset of that would be maybe someone who has somewhat more soft complementarianist views um, and, and has differing views for how you handle a senior pastor role versus some other pastoral leadership role, but still an elder type of role. Um, so you had that substantive debate, complementarian versus egalitarian. You would also have people who might feel differently about the issue based on a linguistic debate. Uh, that is, what about women serving in a non-elder capacity with a pastoral title, right? The children's pastor, the women's pastor, the worship pastor, the counseling pastor, pastors in the title, but maybe they're not doing what elders do according to the New Testament. And so from a complementarian viewpoint, that's not a problem, but uh, the, the title of pastor is there. So you could have a linguistic debate there, people who could break differently on these issues because of how they feel about the title, words of the title. You also have the sort of missional debate. Can we cooperate across the aisle on this issue for the spread of the gospel? Does the fact that a church has a female elder, someone serving in that actual capacity, does that mean that they they can't be part of being friendly co friendly cooperation with the SBC, uh, where we're funding missionaries and doing that work together. And then there was the procedural debate, um, and both issues had a procedural questions with them. Um, so specifically, do we want Saddleback disfellowshipped, and was it appropriate for the executive committee to take that step between conventions, which is a whole other long somewhat possibly boring conversation. And is it appropriate to reiterate the issue of complementarianism in the Constitution in Article 3, or is it enough to just include the BFM 2000? So you have all of these different questions, and people could break differently on all of them. So you have a vote that takes place with thousands of messengers, and I can't for the life of me see how you can say that they were necessarily saying any one thing. Um, especially because I think so much of the conversation around this tended to characterize it as an up or down vote on complementarianism, which is very different from an up or down vote on whether women can be called pastors or whether women can be in non-elder capacity ministry roles. So I think, yeah, I think all of that is really complex and is further complicated by the involvement of Rick Warren and the sort of his, the way he chose to involve himself in this discussion, which I have lots of thoughts about, but I will try not to go into them because I don't know that we have time. Um, but I think some of the choices he made further amplified the way that this was characterized as a, a vote for keeping Saddleback is a vote for egalitarianism or a vote for not amending the Constitution is a vote for egalitarianism. A vote, if, so if you are complementarian, you ought to vote to disfellowship Saddleback if you are a complementarian, you ought to vote for this amendment. And I don't think that that was actually true, but I think I would not be surprised if a lot of messengers, that was their impression in part because of the way that Rick Warren framed the issue. Yeah, I- Hopefully I, that makes sense. It does. I wish we had more time to talk about how this all intersects with like Rick Warren's identity as like, celebrity pastor and the fact that he has 
over the past decade or so really framed himself in many ways as the public face of evangelicalism. Um, alas, we do not have time to go into that. Maybe that's a, a follow-up episode to this one. Um, but thanks, Alexis, for pulling out a lot of those nuances. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and, uh, Blake, ask you to speak since uh, you are the only seminary-trained panelist among us today, um, and we've been talking about all of these nuances about kind of congregational affiliation and how do we balance kind of recognizing individual um, worth and contribution with how are we a member of this larger body Um, talk to us about how you were taught as a seminary student to address difficult congregational issues like this. Um, Is this a problem of leadership? Is it bad because the optics are bad? Both of those things, neither of those things. Uh, Say more about what's going on here from that perspective. Yeah, well, um, like I said earlier, I went to uh, a Church of Christ uh, affiliated seminary, but it was a very progressive seminary for the Church of Christ tradition, and basically all of the professors were adamantly uh, in favor of women deserving an equal presence in ministry, and books were being written about it. I was actually called out in one class with 25 other students. The The professor, for some reason, decided I was some sort of ultra-patriarchalist and called me out and asked me several questions in a row about why I believe women, you know, shouldn't be pastors and elders and stuff like that. And I, I, I was a little deer in the headlights and I didn't have the, the frame of mind at the time to say, dude, I'm 25 years old and I'm, I'm, you know, my first year of this, I don't know the answer to that question. And I think the prudent answer is I need to read, you know, 50 books about that before I can talk about it with the kind of facility and alacrity you're, you're trying to ask me for. Um, and at the same time, what was interesting is that I would I would listen to women classmates of mine talk about uh, how they would go to Church of Christ churches and tell, you know, they would be asked, what are you what are you doing? What do you do for work or anything? And they'd say, oh, I'm at I'm at the seminary. And immediately the the people asking them would say, well, um, we don't believe in women in ministry here. And they would have to say, I'm OK with you, you know, that I'm not interested in a job right now, <laughs> you know, and they would write. It almost seemed like it was a rite of passage for a woman at a, going through any of the Church of Christ seminaries to eventually write a blog post titled Why, Despite Everything, I Still Won't Leave the Church of Christ. Um, and so it, it, the 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 atmosphere was kind of thick with this question. Uh, I don't think that we had much in the way of conversations on how to address this in terms of my my classes and my seminary training. Um, I've only attended one seminary, but I've got this idea that there are seminaries that really seem geared towards sending out missionaries, seminaries that really seem geared towards making pastors. And I feel like ACU, at the very least when I was there, was most interested in making professors who would learn uh, you know, German just so they could read Karl Barth uh, better and, and, you know, put things out at the Society of Biblical Literature every year. Um, we did at one point, every, everybody in the year that I was, uh, the freshman had to, uh, make an assignment where a congregant decided to get divorced in order to not saddle his wife with debt and subsequently decided that marriage certificates didn't matter and that you could just be married in your heart. And, uh, most of the my classmates and myself believed that the idea was to go to the Bible, 
find the the relevant verses, study them, study the you know, study it the way that affirm, affirms your point of view. You know, exegete the text the way that helps you um, make your point the way you want to make it, and then deliver that and. I think there was kind of an underlying understanding that these kinds of conversations would never really convince everyone and that the members who just couldn't have their minds changed and couldn't tolerate uh, you going with the other option would leave either quiet or not so quiet. And then at the end of the day, you know, the group of people that were able to find consensus and hang together would be left. And that was basically the best you could hope for when it comes to the question of what kind of problem this is, um, I think that leadership and optics both definitely have uh, their place in it. The idea that any given leader can decide, well, if I'm right and I'm the leader, I either need to you know, quit the job or I just need to pull rank and, and lead these people whether they like it or not, or you know, lead them by the neck where they don't wanna go, that sort of thing. And then there's the optics of the entire dimension of what are people outside of this denomination, outside of our church thinking, and and what is the what are we going to do to ourselves if we take a too hard a line on this, and then what are we going to do for the kingdom if we don't take a hard enough line on it? And really, two things uh, jump out to me when I think about this, and that's that people tend to believe what they were first taught, and I'm talking often about like just lay congregants. Um, and they also believe what they want to believe. Now, obviously, this isn't always true, but these forces are powerful enough to withstand appeals to authority. I mean, if, if you want to believe women can be ministers, N.T. Wright has written and spoken enough about it that you can, you can make a nice Bible study about that. If you want to believe they can't, go to John Piper. He's said plenty about it himself. Um, we all have a Bible there are a thousand different interpretations. Others are going to say you're wrong no matter what you profess. So eventually people of both sides have to say, this is just what I believe. It makes sense to me that people disagree with me, but you know, people disagree with me about all the other things I know I'm right about. Uh, so there are simply enough explanations and counter explanations that this issue will never be fully resolved. And the work then becomes a little bit of what can we live with? What is the, you know, the, the position that keeps us in God's good graces while also letting the door be wide enough open uh, for other people to come in and fellowship with us uh, while also, you know, being able to believe we are a people who stand for something and are willing to be unpopular in order to be right. So it's a tough question all around. And, I don't know if any amount of seminary training can can get you to a point where you can have a, a great answer to this question and much less a, an answer that will convince everybody you, you share it with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a that's a really good point. And I I definitely think it's important to address that issue of of balance that you were talking about. Um, how can we open the door um as, as wide as possible to welcome as many people in. I like the way you put that. Um, and how can we make sure that we're representing the, um, the kind of interpretation of, of divine wisdom that we most adhere to? Uh, I like that a lot. But before we explore that issue of balance more, um, Katie and Alexis, is there anything that Blake said that you would like to respond to? 
I have some I have some thoughts jumping off from that, but I actually think that I'm going to wait and say that after we talk about this other article, because I think this other article uh, really illuminates the thing that I was like about to say. <laughs> so so I'm going to I'm going to hold that for a few minutes and I'm going to bring that up later because Blake, what Blake said made me think of something else. Um, another kind of tension that I think is happening in all these debates. Um, yeah, I think I think I have if I have additional comments, I'll wait until a different point in the conversation. OK. Uh, so then a bigger question, uh, in terms of that issue of balance, how do we decide where the balance is between these issues of broader, um, organizational affiliation and theology and the importance of making sure individual members of our congregation are heard and seen? What does that balance look like? And obviously, that's a giant question, and I'm not presuming that we have the answer, but let's let's talk about it anyway. It is a hard question, I, and I think part of it is to – I'm trying to think how I want to say this. Like, we need to – if we're going to affiliate ourselves, like, you know, because we're using fellowshipping or, you know, disfellowshipping or affiliation or whatever, if we're going to be a part of a group that has certain – theological distinctives i think that we should adhere to those distinctives even if no one's making us right even if it's not a top-down style denomination but rather a bottom-up situation where churches choose to affiliate with the denomination with the convention right um and i think and i i'll go i'll I'll go ahead and say what i was going to say later because it feels appropriate now one other tension that and blake reminded me that i wanted to talk about this one other tension that has come up with all of this is the degree to which to me there's a lot of disconnect between local churches and the convention even with churches that are affiliated with the convention and what i mean by that is that um i think at the at the national level and there's this you know and at the convention level there's this whole discussion about these you know these different terms of pastor versus minister there you know um constitutional changes, all these things are happening. And those of us who read about it a lot know all about it. But I remember kind of being flabbergasted one day when I was, we were in our Texas church and I tossed off the term complementarian in our church, in our Bible study. And one of my ladies said, wait, wait, hold I'm sorry. What does that mean? And others also said, yeah, no, I don't, what is, I've never heard that. And I kind of, and I explained it and I said, well, it's, it's the position our church takes on uh, certain issues of gender and who can be, you know, and I kind of had to explain it. I, but the degree to which that our ladies in our church, you know, great Christian ladies who read their Bibles every day, these women had theological convictions, but they didn't even know the words that were part of this intense debate that's been raging, uh, you know, and, um, and, I, and you can really see that too, I think, when we get to this next article where they're, you know, that the writers are talking to specific women um, ministers in some of these churches that are probably going to be affected by this. Um, go, go ahead yes. and go ahead okay. and take us there. I, th- yeah, I think no, we've fine. moved far enough along. Yeah. Okay, so um, this article is in the Tennessean by Liam Adams and Catherine Burgess, and basically what they kind of did is they took it down to the personal level, and they talked to, um, included personal views from different women pastors who were on the list, who were listed on the list, my clause list, Um, and I liked it because they gave good background. They listed the two kind of sides. You've got Rick Warren et al. on one side, and then on the other side, you've got Mike Law and the people with him. I really liked that Burgess and Adams pointed out that female voices haven't been prominent on either of those two major sides in either of those two camps, which is not that there aren't women in both of those camps. There are, but the loudest voices have been men. Um, 
And one of the things that I was fascinated by in this article is them talking about, you know, different churches on this list that um, aren't really tied to the SBC closely um, or in some cases had actually kind of unofficially left the convention years ago but just had never officially taken themselves off the rolls. Um, also, they talked to at least one uh, female pastor on this list who um, this whole situation made them realize, oh, we we for, we need to officially leave the SBC. Like, we should have done this already. In some cases, it was almost like they didn't even think about the fact that they were still affiliated. And then they appear on this hit list, right? And, um, and they're like, oh, that was, oh, we're still part of that? Okay, we need to, you know, officially disengage. And that was kind of fascinating to me. So I just thought it was really interesting. And I thought that article did a great job of showing the disconnect between what's happening in local congregations, right? And then what's happening at the national level. And I think that's what Mike Law is on about, is I think, you know, people in his camp are saying, hey, like, if we if we're supposed to all share these beliefs, we should all actually share these beliefs. But because we are a collective of churches, we're not a top-down, you know, enforcement-style denomination. There are absolutely churches who are fellowshipping with us who are doing the opposite of this, you know, and should they be a part of it? Now, and we can have a, you know, it can be a super long conversation of if listing a list of people's names was the right way to go about that. Um, you know, so but I, no, I was kind of surprised. no, it was not. I'll I'll go like, ahead and say like well, and I got no. really mad. I got really mad because when I got into it made me really mad too. And when I got into in part because when I got into the list, yes, there were churches on the list that had lead female pastors who to, very clearly are are not doing things right the way that we that there's you know they're not even they they were not even doing what was implied by the 1960 Baptist faith the message right like or well maybe they were 1960 not 2000 not 2000 um but there were also churches on that list that the only women woman in that church referred to as a pastor was a children's pastor and the lady'd been there for like 30 years come on like this is nonsense i you know it, it felt like um it felt like he was taking a sledgehammer to something where he needed a scalpel like if you're gonna, I, if you're gonna make question. a list, like I, I, if you're gonna make a list, maybe actually take the time to 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 double check and make sure that all of these churches that you're listing, that um that women being called pastors are actually doing roles that we would reserve for elders, as Alexis made the distinctive earlier, because he didn't do that, and that was the biggest problem with. I mean, if you're gonna, I still don't know that he should have made a list, but if you're gonna make a list, make sure the list is actually pointing at the issue that you're trying to show, not just you know doing a search for the word pastor on a bunch of churches' websites and throwing them all on there. Sorry, I'm, I got mad about it. <laughs> I think that makes sense. I, it occurs to me, I, I wish I'd thought of this earlier and I would have done a little bit of research, but, and I hope this doesn't sound disparaging or offensive, but how old is Mike Laws? And I wonder, does he, I just feel like as a 37-year-old, I know what happens when you make a list of women and put it on the internet. I feel like, like he's not that old. That's like, a, I don't right. I don't, that's a good I mean, question. No, he's not that like, old. <laughs> I don't. I think he's young enough to know better. That, that's no, my, what happens my, when you make a list of women on the internet. Because, because, yeah, he's he's not that old. Because to me, <laughs> yeah. like that was the thing that made me the angriest is he publishes this list and then he's like, "Oh, I didn't mean for people to be harassed, sir. You put a list of women's names on the internet. Like that is just what happens when you do yes. that." And that's and the what happens. And the fact that he played dumb about it was the most offensive thing to me. 
Yeah. And when he was like, well, you know, no, people always say, oh, this isn't actually happening. And, he, you know, he said, oh, I want to show it's actually happening. Well, he could have done that by giving numbers. Like if he really wanted to show the scale of, the, of what he felt like is the problem, he could have been like, look, this many dozens and dozens or hundreds of churches, you know, have women that are listed as pastors like, you know, without listing anybody's names. I mean, there are ways if you there, yeah. he could have. There's Absolutely. Middle ground. If like, you I mean, if you if you want to do that, publish a bar chart. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I like, but you're gonna you're gonna publish a PDF with pictures, full names, link to church websites, addresses. I mean, like it. it yeah. Like you couldn't. I you couldn't give better info to docs people that if you wanted to. I like, and yeah, it it seems extremely either naive or ill. I mean, like actively malicious to like either he's really stupid right. at at best or, naive or that's what he wanted to at happen. worst. Yeah deeply malicious the old malice or stupidity dyad that we have to consider all the time yeah. well and 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 not even the sense of he might have the best possible intentions but i mean we're like we believe in original sin like not everybody's gonna have your same intentions mike law like he should be able to think beyond his own mind too and think beyond the best intentioned people he knows and think how could this go wrong Exactly. Before, exactly. Before pulling, and, before pulling a lever like that, you know, I, and yeah, the complete I, lack of that is what just that's that's. Oh, I just can't. I can't. Yeah, it, it was it was bananas. But I, I I enjoyed this article because it kind of it gave me a chance as an SPC person to hear the voices of some of these women in some of these churches who. Um, probably are going to be disfellowshipped, which some are voluntarily leaving. I The people I found most interesting reading this article were the people that they talked to who absolutely don't agree with any of this, but won't, but aren't leaving of their own volition. They're waiting to be kicked out. And I thought that was interesting because to me, if you're, if you're basically, if your church is operating in an egalitarian space and you have a female lead pastor, I don't know why you would want to be in fellowship with the SBC, if that makes sense. Like, why not become cooperative Baptist? I, you know, it's interesting to me, the people who were refusing to leave and, and wanting to be kicked out. I mean, I guess maybe they're trying to make a point, you know, um, but it was, that was the, that was the most interesting kind of group mentioned or discussed in that article where the people who were not, who didn't go, oh, we were on the list. We, this is stupid. Why are we even still, we're not even really doing anything with them anymore. We just need to leave. We're out of here, yeah. you know, um, anyway. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I I felt watching all of this is it sounds like both sides are more worried than they need to be. Um, I don't think there's the a human wave condition. Of a, well, I, I don't think that there's a wave of egalitarianism building in the SBC. I mean, the numbers from the vote this summer show it was not it was not close. Um, so I suspect that, like like Katie's saying, the, the few SBC churches who ordain women um, in actual elder-type roles are going to either naturally disassociate from the SBC due to their disagreement with its theology. They're going to at some point be like, well, we think this is terrible and horrible, and we aren't going to support you anymore because of what you're doing. Um, or they'll continue to affiliate because they have a shared commitment to a shared understanding of the gospel, in which case I think it makes sense to maybe continue to cooperate. Um, but I don't think that will be as common. I think it's much more likely, like Katie said, that they will they will find the SBC's views on this abhorrent and voluntarily leave. Um, and then on the on the other side, so I don't think that there's like this, oh no, this horrible thing that's coming and we have to take these extreme measures and change the constitution because this is what is coming. 
On the other side, I don't think the SBC is in any danger of disfellowshipping churches who have women serving as children's pastor. Like I just, I don't think that that is, that is, that there's any real danger of that. Churches need people to head up children's ministry in the current climate. They're unlikely to be able to sustain that on a volunteer only basis. They're going to need to pay someone. And it's not like there's a long, long list of qualified men lining up to say, please let me be your children's pastor. Like the, there just, there just isn't. And so I think there's, there are a lot of churches who are all in the same boat here who want and need women to serve these roles. And I just, I don't think there's any real danger for the, for the worship pastors, for the women's pastor, for the clear non elder positions. Um, I, I just, I don't think there's any risk of that in a, as a practical matter. I could be wrong. I mean, it's hard to say they're not a monolith, but um, there are some issues where there's more disagreement, like maybe someone who teaches a co-ed Sunday school class or who oversees male volunteers, but there's nowhere near a consensus and you do need something closer to a consensus for there to be action. So I just, I feel like, yeah, I don't feel like there's a unified will to oppose those categories of women in ministry. Um, and I don't think there's a unified push to fight about just the linguistic difference of whether we call them a pastor or not when they're not doing elder work. So I just, I think everybody would, would be well served to be like, it's, it's, it's okay. The women are not like coming to take over the SBC. Like lots of women were messengers and the vote was overwhelmingly in support of complementarian perspectives. This is just not, that's just not a risk. So without additional evidence to the contrary, I just, I don't think that either side has an accurate read on what is, yeah, what the actual risks are. Um, I think, um, go ahead, Victoria. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad Alexis that you brought in kind of context in terms of what this looks like within versus what this looks like without. Um, cause I, I wanted to, um, address that. I think that because the SBC, um, is what people think of and talk about when they talk about capital E evangelicalism in the United States, um, odds are they are probably talking about um, the sort of tendencies, um, rules of law, etc. of the Southern Baptist Convention writ large. So that's why I wanted to talk about this Tennessean article. Um, when I was looking for an article to put next to the Christianity Today article, which was more specifically framed, I really wanted to find something from a larger national paper. Um, I looked at CNN's coverage of the convention vote and the New York Times's coverage of the convention vote and the Washington Post's coverage of the convention vote, um, and I hated all of them. They were all incredibly religiously illiterate and did not understand um, the purpose of the theological distinctions other than, you know, uh, telling women they can't do things. It was all very broadly drawn. Uh, so I find it very interesting that to find the kind of nuance I was looking for, I had to make a step down to a regional newspaper. Um, and I wanted to know if you guys had any thoughts about that, what kind of context do we get um, in this Tennessean article, and and is it enough context? I, I think it, oh, you go ahead. 
whoever that was uh, inhaling. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I don't have much to say, think about that, but um, there was, there's no chapters and verses mentioned. So it's, it, it definitely doesn't give us, you know, a, a straight from the source idea of why this would even be a question in the first place. And it almost seems like it's written from a perspective of we're all Tennesseans. We're all, you know, none of us are too far away from a Southern Baptist church. So we all know a little bit of it. That's just kind of the vibe I got. Um, but I, I think that it was it was really good at uh, letting women speak and, and talking about kind of how they felt about these ramifications. One quote from it that I really liked is that Meredith Stone, uh, who's the executive director of a group called Baptist Women in Ministry, said the reinforced exclusion of women pastors will affect some churches symbolically and others materially. So I like the idea of that, that she's able to say this is really, you know, going to change the livelihoods, uh, you know, and, and the work that some women are doing. But at the same time, uh, other churches that may not have a woman on staff will be affected in the sense of this is indelibly, indelibly and inevitably sending a message uh, one way or the other. And, and maybe it's mercurial as to what how it's received by this or that woman. But it's a sending a message about how the, the convention views the work of women and, and what they should be allowed to do and what that scope should be. I liked it because it, um, it, it, and it was very personal in the sense that talking to specific women who, who may or their churches may be affected by this, but I also thought that it did a great job of reinforcing um, the degree to which the ties between Churches fellowship with the SBC are different than churches subject to a top-down denominational structure so that, you know, they talk to some people who were surprised to find themselves on the list because they haven't really, you know, been affiliated with the SBC much for 25 years and, you know, they're and, and are more aligned with the Crawford Baptist Fellowship, but nevertheless are still considered, you know, a church that's connected. They, they made the distinction that, um, you know, that part of, um, part of being uh, in fellowship with the SBC is sending money to the cooperative program, right? Um, that's another thing that's important to remember, right? Um, so I thought it did a good job of kind of showing all the nuances and the different degrees. You've got some SBC churches that are, you know, I, mine is one that are all up in the SBC, you know, I mean, our, the church that I attend right now, he's not our pastor now, but um, my church was where David Platt used to be the pastor. Right. Um, we our pastor Matt is a different person now. But, um, you know, we have like our women's minister is has, you know, contacts at Lifeway Women. We do a lot of their Bible studies like so we're all up in it. Right. But then you've got a lot of other churches who are affiliated with the SBC and a part of the convention who, you know, don't really have that much to do with the convention at large, other than maybe sending a couple of people every few years to go to the convention, if that. So I thought they did a great job of capturing that. The, the 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 huge spectrum of degrees of connectedness with the with the convention at large and um how that's also playing into all this and one other thing victoria that you never mentioned but that i read a lot about in the first few days and we don't have to talk about this but it's just another kind of um facet of this discussion that i saw mentioned a lot in the first few days after that list came out is it is that a ton of the churches on that list um were african-american congregations and people were talking about there's also kind of a racial aspect there because um, it's a lot more common in um, African-American congregations for like 
a pastor and his wife to both be considered pastors of the church. Yeah, like the, hap- the communal structure yeah. is 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 different, yeah. and and the way it intersects with the theology, it just it works differently. Yeah, exactly. And that that wasn't that wasn't explained. That wasn't really dealt with. It was just here's a list, and you know, again, the the blunt instrument that was that list wasn't allowing for any nuance. And so that was another thing that I saw discussed a lot is you know the that you have all these churches that are all part of this big convention, but it's, we're all voluntarily associating. We're all really, really different from each other. And I think that's another thing too, the average person, maybe that's another reason, Victoria, that the the mainstream publications you were seeing were getting it all wrong in some cases is because I think your writer for the New York Times or whoever, you know, I think they tend to think of the SBC as a denomination like the PCA or, you know, the Methodist church or, you know, in the sense of that top-down organizational structure, right? Um, and don't don't necessarily understand the degree of autonomy that each individual church has within the SBC that does fellowship with it. And that, you know, it's all, it's voluntary. It's bottom down, like it's bottom up. I mean, it's just interesting. I think that's one reason that it gets misunderstood a lot. Um, I appreciate that you were able to find an article that wasn't, you know, that, that was, um, I thought that Tennessee article was good. I thought it was pretty even handed. It didn't seem to be basically, you know, uh, from a, a secular viewpoint, anything short of egalitarianism is bananas. And we're just, you know, we're not even going to talk about it. Like these people are crazy kind of <laughs> a situation. And I, I did have one other thing to say about all of this, which is, and I don't know if this is the, no, I'll save this for like final thoughts. I'll save it for final thoughts. It definitely didn't have the venom of every piece about Christianity that I read on Slate or Salon or anything like that. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously so. those things were not appropriate for this discussion, and I didn't even look at them. I don't know that uh, Slate or Salon weighed in on this vote. If they did, uh, their thoughts have no place in this discussion because that's not what we're trying to do. Complementarian organization believes in complementarianism. Well, that's, that was, that's my summary of most of the the coverage that I saw. It's like, yeah, we know. That's why. Anyway. Listen, you don't have to tell me I'm a Catholic. Anytime sure. Pope Francis says a Catholic thing, everybody is like, the Pope is still Catholic, you guys. Yeah. Yep. So I, um, I get it. I will say one one issue I'm still thinking about in part because of what the, the Tennessee and Peace had was to what degree it's appropriate to agitate for change within an organization with clearly stated beliefs. Um, and and maybe also to what degree publicly to agitate for change. So, for example, if you are a professor at a religious institution, you may be allowed to teach there even if you don't share the religious beliefs of that institution, but there may be rules about whether you can, in the classroom, talk about why the institution's religious convictions are are boneheaded or or mistaken. Um, They might say, hey, can you not do that in the classroom? You know, we, we pay you to teach. Can you not do this with the money we pay you, you know, um, and, and so, uh, there can be those kinds of, of limitations, uh, not to teach contrary to the, the stated beliefs of the organization you work for. Um, and, and I'm wondering about, I'm still thinking about what I, how I feel about that in this context. If, you know, if you disagree with what the SBC is doing, to what extent is it appropriate to lobby against those views or at what point do you say there is probably another denomination where you would be more comfortable that does align with your convictions? I, I want to encourage reformation. So I, I don't want to say never, 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 whatever they believe, stagnant, lack of change should always be preserved. 
Um, but there is a part of me, and part of this is, again, because of how Rick Warren reacted with some of this. But if you, yeah, yeah, how, how appropriate is that to to lobby for change and say, I know this is what you as an organization and we have always said, but it's wrong and I'm going to lobby publicly against it, but also want to stay in the organization. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I'm still thinking about that because there is a part of me that's like, you should just go. And then again, there's a part of me that's like, well, that I don't want to doom every organization to being cut off from reformation. So that's something I'm still thinking about as a result of of the SBC vote stuff. And and like I said, some of the, the things brought up in the Tennessee and with the different churches that were either voluntarily leaving or, or not. Yeah, I, I think um, how much do or should people change institutions is a, a, a really thorny question that that can pop up in a lot of uh places but i i like that you're you're thinking about that okay we're running pretty long so uh real quick anybody have any final thoughts that they want to bring up before we transition into our recommendations i realized that i forgot my final thoughts I had something really great that I wanted to add that we hadn't talked about. And then in the last five minutes, it has, I got so interested in what you guys were saying. It has left my mind. It's okay. <laughs> so it, it happens. Uh, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, if I, while the rest of you guys giving your final thoughts, if I can remember it, I'll say it at the end. If I can't, don't worry about it. I would just want to say uh, that I can appreciate the importance that many people you know, want to place on this issue. Um, I just come from a personal tradition and a personal uh, faith that that these issues uh, definitely are less important than some of the the most major central tenets of our faith. I would not put this at the core of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a Baptist. And I I always want to pray and and work and hope for grace and cooperation and uh, peace between everybody on these issues, even if these differences cannot, uh, you know, be fully reconciled or come to a consensus on. I remembered it. What I was going to say is that way back, Alexis, you mentioned something about like the kind of the the left edge, you know, versus and, and as we approach the left edge, at least in the SBC, there's more consensus, right? But as you back away from that, there's more variety. And is there a right edge? I think there absolutely is a right edge. And I think that one reason um, some, not just women, some men are concerned too. I think one reason that some women in the SBC did get a little concerned about this vote and proposed constitutional change and all this kind of stuff and, and, and do worry about if it could go even further is because I think that the, the, what I would call the, the right edge, which would be the line between complementarian rights, so different roles, um, and patriarchalism, men are literally worth more and they should be in charge because they're better. And I think that there's been, and, and weirdly, as time has gone by, I think in a reactionary kind of way, there's been a more and more men in the complementarian world who I think are getting very close to that right edge. And they're getting very close to just tipping over into just patriarchalism. And I think that that Noticing that, I think, has made some women be more wary of what, in this case, really is a, it's, 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 it's trying to reinforce things that have been there, at least since the 
faith and message 2000 the language is there right it's it's in some ways it's it's a procedural thing it doesn't and i agree with you blake i think it's it's people are making a bigger deal of it maybe than they need to but i think some of the women that are a little frightened of it is i think that's part of it is that i think they're seeing this change being proposed they see then a list be published and at the same time as some my husband and i, I and i this I, this is not well i don't care i'm gonna say the names my husband and i call them the straw cocks owen strawn gavin peacock for us are emblemized emblematize those types of guys but the guys that are technically complementarian but always seem to be pushing on that right edge towards tipping over into patriarchy and usually it takes the form of a general kind of dismissal of women's ideas or contributions or um, a much more outsized concern with the limitations on women rather than the opportunities but i think that that's i think we need to do a better job of policing that right edge. And I think that there are some men in the SBC who need to realize, I don't think maybe they're in denial, who need to realize that really they're kind of patriarchalists. They're not actually complementarian anymore. And maybe they need to see themselves out the door into a different, you know, I don't know what would it be, but they're, you know, and, and I think those are the people who act like that J.D. Greer or some of the, you know, some of these other people who want to make, who say that we should encourage the contributions of women, not just allow them to do things. You can, you can spot those people because they act like that people like J.D. Greer or Jen Wilkin, those people hate Jen Wilkin. They'll act like that it's just beyond the pale that, you know, somebody like Jen Wilkin is, you know, as platformed in the SBC just purely because she's like, head of Bible study curriculum at the village church. I, I can't like just, but I think, I think we need to also be thinking about the threat of that rightward edge. And that could be part of the reason that um, something that really shouldn't be that big of a deal has a lot of people scared. Yeah. To clarify, I wasn't saying that I didn't think there was a theological rightward edge. It was, oh, I yeah, don't sure. know. I don't know that the SBC practically has unity around a rightward edge the way that they do around a leftward edge. So as a practical matter, I don't know that they would be able to get agreement about, you know, this far and no farther. They That was more my, I don't know that there is a rightward edge for the that for that convention. I for absolutely sure. think there is a rightward edge. I just, I don't know. I would guess that there are lots of churches in the SBC who would be over that. And I don't know if it's enough to keep them from actually establishing that edge. I mean, I, I think it probably exists in agreement, if not in practice, because that's the divide between the SBC and the IFB, right? A, a lot of the um, a lot of the patriarchalist stuff you're talking about is kind of a cornerstone of independent fundamentalist Baptist churches, um, which I, I know we've talked about in other episodes um, of this show, so I don't want to get into that. Also, we are running very long, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and say let's transition into our final segment, uh, our passing on segment. Yeah, I'm going to recommend All My Knotted Up Life, a memoir by Beth Moore. Um, It is a first-person account of a woman in ministry in the Southern Baptist Church who is no longer in the Southern Baptist Church. Um, I don't necessarily agree with Moore about everything, but I think it was a really helpful and important read. Also, if you can get your hands on the audiobook, it's pretty delightful. She actually tries to grade her accent as she reads, depending on if she's talking about early growing up in Arkansas, later in ministry. She's kind of Anyway, it's it's a it's a well done, well written book, well uh, read audio book, and I think a helpful perspective um, for this conversation. Thanks, Alexis. I have heard that's great, and I really would like to read it. Uh, Blake, what do you have for us? My uh, church history professor at ACU uh, did a lecture on 
the the question of of women in ministry and what they should do. The technical name for it on YouTube is Class Two colon a study on utilizing the giftedness of women hyphen what's a woman to do with Jeff Childers. But if you just look up Jeff Childers Women in Ministry, he's the first. This is the first one. It's a interesting story. He he kind of talks from both sides of the issue. He's also really sardonic and witty and he's just, it was just a joy to, to talk to and take take uh you know a class from when i was there so it's a it's a fun use of an hour of your time not just informative so thanks blake i'll definitely be checking that out katie what's your recommendation i'm going to recommend an article that was actually linked in the christianity today article that we read for this episode because i um I got curious about it, um, seeing it quoted there, and I followed the link, and I read the article, and I really liked it. And so um, it's by Leah Finn and Nathan Finn, a married couple, both um, part of the SBC um, and both with kind of, I don't know what I would call, maybe like procedural authority. Um, she's maybe head of a committee, and um, I think they said he's a, re- a reporting secretary. Um, and the article is at Baptist Press. It's called um, First Person. It's a first-person account, I guess. Um, I don't know if they have a series of those, but the full title is Complementarianism, Women in Ministry, and Kingdom Advance. And I really liked that article because these are two people who were definitely speaking from the viewpoint of agreeing with the theological distinctives, but being concerned about the way that um, the rhetoric in some ways has turned and um, and the outsized emphasis on limitations rather than opportunities. And I thought it was a really great uh, quick read. Thanks, Katie. I liked that uh, article a lot too. I also read it, so I'm, I'm glad that you included it in your recommendation. My recommendation is an opinion piece uh, from Baptist News by a woman named Jennifer Hawks. Uh, It's called What Mike Law Got Right, uh, and it explores uh, something that uh, Katie and Alexis, you both alluded to over the course of our discussion, which is this idea that there were churches uh, historically that always um, pushed back against the SBC and happened to be in certain areas of the country, um, that this thread has always been there. And uh, just because there's a different codification now doesn't mean that this hasn't been going on in various ways and that people haven't been serving um, in these churches fruitfully for a long time. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for sticking with us through this very long discussion. Uh, We appreciate you. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you want to just say hello, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's X handle at CH Radio Network, and check out the show notes from this or our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Katie, Alexis, and Blake, I'm Victoria. Tune in next month when we'll be talking about cosplay and gender roles. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.